0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Music, Money, in Life podcast. This episode is installment number three of what I believe will be a four-part series of sync licensing frequently asked questions. This is installment number three. Um, before we jump into today's podcast, if you'd like to get an absolutely, totally free, no-strings-attached four-hour Audio video course all about how to make money in sync licensing. Visit my website, which is htlym. That's htlym as in how to license your music premium.com. htlympremium.com. If you go to that website, scroll down about halfway down on the page, there's a link. It'll take you to a page where you can sign up again for a completely free course. It's four hours all about how to break into sync licensing and how to make money licensing your music in TV, films, and ads. Okay, in today's episode, in the first segment, I'm speaking with John Anderson from the, the music publishing company Honey Pot out of LA. And I'm asking John and speaking with him about how to break into sync licensing. And John speaks to the importance of developing a following and the importance of being really established upfront prior to breaking into music licensing. This is what John had to say. There's a lot of music out there and there's a lot of opportunities for licensing, but what advice do you have to artists that are are trying to break into the world of sync and TV and film placement? In Any sort of general advice you can give artists?
1: Yeah, I mean, I prefer working with songwriters that write and record their own material. You know, basically, you know, Self-contained acts, you know. I mean that—that's—that's mm-hmm. that's my 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 you know happy zone right there. You know, I mean there are plenty of of of, of writers that compose cues and do score. Uh, there's there's writers that, that <clears throat> you know write a song specifically uh, looking to have a <coughs> excuse me someone else to record it for them and uh, and use that for a way to get a placed. But I like to go with with artists that that you know that are writing and recording and releasing their own material, <laughs> and through that, uh, you know, it, it really it's it's just pushing it and 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 the act by any ma- means as I can. You know, I mean, it's just trying to find uh, find uh, uh, ways to get people to listen. To focus and uh, put their ears on it, um, you know. I, I typically, when I'm talking to, to artists that are self contained, you know, uh, you know, I stress that I think it's more important for them to focus on finding their own fan base and you know, uh, establishing themselves as you know, viable touring and recording artists. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then once that happens, I feel like. It's easier for the industry to sort of find you, yeah. and for you to have leverage when you're dealing with the industry. Um, you, you know, uh, but at the same time, you know, you need a team around you. You know, you need you know a publisher, uh, a, a distributor, you know, label or manager, an attorney, you know, merchandise, all these the agent, all these different elements of of a team. And you never know when, uh, when you know one of these players is going to come into your world, uh, and you know you always should should pursue those opportunities and explore those those areas together. See if there's uh, something there. You know.
0: Yeah. Uh, how, how important do you think do you feel things like social media are? And and the reason I ask this is. I recently signed with a new sync ag- agency, and they, they really like what I'm doing, and I have sort of a whole new batch of songs that, that I've been shopping over the last few months. And so I signed a few songs with this particular agency, and they're kind of emailing back and forth, and they're like, we, you know, we love what you do, but we want to talk about your social media. We want to outline an actual plan for really building your social media following. And it was really the first time I, I've heard that from a publisher or a sync agency. Yeah. Is that something that you – are you finding that's more and more important, that that you not just write great songs and, and tour to support them, but that you have sort of a, a, an established following online?
1: Well, it does not hurt, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that's the, the ultimate, you know, decision-making element that, that's there. You know, the music is the music, and, you know, if you can license and work within someone's budget, that should be the uh, the highest priority. You know, but that said, you know, people oftentimes, you know, if, they, if they're looking for, you know, uh, a song that, that is, uh, you know, something that's buzzing, that, that is a they're looking for a cool group that maybe hasn't broke yet that will be uh, making some noise in the next few months to potentially tie to an advertising campaign. Uh, you know, numbers are important. They know they want to see that, uh, that there's a fan base and people are reacting to it, and uh, uh, you know that does mean mean something. Which kind of goes back to the point where I say you know truly focus on your 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 following. You know your fan base because those are the people that uh, that are going to
0: carry you through you know okay in the next uh segment i'm speaking with independent tv film composer ed hartman and i'm asking ed about using sites like taxi to break into music licensing again this is something i've gotten a lot of questions about over the years whether or not i think using sites like taxi is a good idea is it a good investment is it worth the money and I've spoken with a lot of different composers about taxi and different composers have had different experiences and different perspectives, but this is what Ed Hartman had to say about using sites like taxi. Let's, you know, you brought up an an, an interesting topic, which is I get a lot of questions about taxi. And I don't – I'm reluctant to sort of give people advice one way or the other. I actually was a member of Taxi for a year quite a few years ago, like seven or eight years ago, and didn't really have much success through them. But it sounds like mm-hmm. you, you did. Were, were the, was ta- So you signed up with Taxi, and they got you in a music library that placed your music in the blind side. Is that, is that how it worked?
2: Not, I don't think the blind side came through that. That was through activity outside of that. But, okay. um I have a lot of music in libraries as a result of that, some major okay. libraries that I recommend. Nowadays, there's other resources out there. You don't have to go through companies like Taxi to get to libraries. There are plenty of resources that you can find them. Whether it's better or not, I you know it just depends on the library. Some libraries prefer to go through companies like that because they want to throttle down the submissions. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, there's plenty of them that I contact a regular basis, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, sure, why not?" And there's other companies that do this too. Same. What I my boilerplate answer to taxi, and you know, again, I'm a big believer in them as a, as a company. I think they're very well run. I think ethically, it's probably one of the best companies I've ever found. And and they have a guarantee. I mean, if you really can't get anything out of it, you know, you can talk to the owner and. And he'll work it out. He'll refund your money. So, uh, okay. I mean, he's a tremendous guy uh, who does it, Michael, who runs that, that, that company. And I've gotten to know him personally. And I think that's the, the real rule of it, is that the more you get to know people personally, whether it's with a library or a company like this, the more you're going to get out of it. Sure. Uh, most people, I think, go through life as a fly on the wall. They sit on the side and they watch. The people that are successful... Like yourself are the people that create universes around them, and people come to them for information, and you become a resource you become you know much more uh in demand uh yourself people get to know you and it's it's a this is common knowledge that it's a um it, everything is personal yeah you know forever um now with taxi, the one thing I can always say is that their convention, which happens in November in l a is worth the the price of admission to the to the membership alone and that may be its strongest suit at this point, at least a major part of the of, of you know what you pay to join because you have an amazing convention that runs for three days and many many network opportunities there. I teach my class there when I get down there. What floors me about that organization is. The people that teach that class, the classes down there, the resources, nobody gets paid for any of this, to get there or, or to do the classes, right. as far as I know. And yeah, and there's a lot of us that do this. There's a huge community that's in contact with our, with our, our, our friends around the world now, all you know, people that have go to, this, especially go to the rallies, get in touch through Facebook and the forums and things. Anyway, it, 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 it really is a community. Uh, and and you and you imagine going to a convention, and all the people that are teaching are all doing this for free. Why are they doing this? Why are they spending their time going there and teaching versus taking classes themselves it 's just part of the nature of what you do with an organization like that from my standpoint. I get a lot back. I get a lot more back by by teaching than ever I did by participating. I become much more of the community that way. People get to know me a lot deeper. I don't feel like a fly on the wall and and I get a lot more out of it. In comparison, if you contact some of the other conventions that are out there, uh, I can I contacted one that I went to last year and I asked what, uh, you know, what would it take for me to teach my class there? I did this great class on licensing, and they told me, well, you'd have to get a corporate sponsorship. It would be about $5,000. Then we'll consider you for a class.
0: Yeah, then we'll consider Okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, And that alone, when you compare that to taxi, that everybody's doing this stuff for free, that's really kind of an amazing difference in itself. As far as, you know, getting gigs from taxi, like anything, it's very, very tough. And, and I think the world has changed in the last 10 to 15 years that I I've am. been doing this. And uh, th- there's a lot more people doing it. Uh, and I think uh, your odds of uh, working with companies, of sending them uh, tracks, and then having them get through the gatekeepers, and then getting through the next set of gatekeepers and then having the eventual client actually make use of all those things having to come down, it's it's a lot longer of a road now than it has been. So, you know, I, I, again, I tell people companies like Taxi are best as educational companies first. If your desire is to get your music and film and TV, learn as much as you can from these companies and then use them as you can, as you can afford them. Eventually your stuff will make it out there, but the amounts, the percentages are going to be low and it's going to take a long time. And even when you get a placement, between the time you write a track and pitch it out there and get it in the library and then get it placed and then get paid for it, years can go by. Yeah. It is get rich slow, very much, and I think we all are in that one. I have gotten my upfront placements a year after they've been on television. That's the upfront. Yeah, the <laughs> the, know, the, they, the
0: supposedly upfront money. Yeah.
2: Right, and I understand why because the 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 library gets paid after they they're not going to get paid until a few months at least two to three months after the music's on the program often and then it may miss a semi-yearly payment to their composers and by then it can easily be nine to twelve months on there
0: okay in the next segment i'm speaking with tv film composer david frederick and in this segment david is talking about the the importance of approaching music licensing as a business, because if you're trying to make money in music licensing, obviously it is a business. And a lot of us as artists, we like to think of ourselves as, as artists and we and we like to focus on the art and the, and the creative aspects of being a composer. But in this segment, David is, is talking about the very practical idea of approaching this with a business mindset. This is what David had to say. How have your the relationships, at- sort of changed over the years. Are you still working with people that you connected with way back in the 90s, or are you yeah. constantly connecting with new people? How has that worked out for you?
3: Well, you know, I've always kind of taken the approach that a lot of this stuff is relationship-based, and, you know, the first and foremost thing that – and maybe this goes back to, you know, my childhood and growing up in the electronic music space and getting to hang out with my dad and see the business side of things as well – for me, I've always, you know, looked at it, uh, you know, kind of a Doctor Jekyll, Mr Hyde kind of thing. You know, in one sense, uh, yes, I'd like to consider myself an artist. I compose music and I compose music in various styles for various digital mediums. Um, but I'm also a businessman, and you know, I am the product. So I, I kind of take this approach of this is a business, business is relationships, and I'm delivering a product for a client. Uh, even if I, you know, have a great relationship with that client, they're still hiring me because of the product that I deliver and the way in which I deliver that product. So, you know, the relationships, you know, I always try to maintain positive relationships going forward because you never know when they're going to pan out. And, you know, every now and again, you know, I'll get a call from somebody I did work with, you know, like a blast from the past and you know, and it's great that they still, you know, think fondly of me and really enjoy the work that I've done for them or music that I've written for their projects. And, you know, that works out, but it's, 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 um, it's a dynamic process. You know, I mean, I was just thinking about this today before I call, you know, I typically spend two days a week doing nothing but networking, marketing, mm-hmm. reaching out to clients, uh, you know, just, if nothing else just staying top of mind you know the old adage out of sight out of mind um, it's it's tough you know and the thing that i think makes it tougher for for us as composers is you know probably back in the 90s and the 80s and even the early 2000s um, it was a little bit i don't want to say easier but if you were if you were a, you could deliver good product uh, you had the relationship skills uh, and you had the right gear you know you would have a much better chance of being successful the problem or the opportunity depending on your perspective today is technology has democratized um, the ability of of artists and composers to not only write and produce super high quality product but also have all these different mediums in which to get that product out there so the good news is for all of us is we have so many more opportunities and ways to get our, our work out there. The bad news is there are millions of us out there of varying degrees of quality and professionalism um, trying to get that work. So it it muddies the water, which means, you know, in my opinion, you've, you've got to work a little bit harder, you've got to differentiate, and you've got to maintain and build new relationships.
0: Yeah, abs- absolutely. And you said something sort of interesting that, that really rings true in my experience. It almost seems like because there's so many, because it's easier in a sense to to get music out there, it seems like there's a lot more sort of mediocre music out there that you're competing with in a sense, in the sense that it takes up people's time. So if you're trying to get your music into a music library or with a music publisher or even directly to a supervisor, they're typically sort of inundated with all this music, like you said, of varying degrees of of quality. So how do you sort of rise above that, that barrage of competition?
3: Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, I wish I had a magic formula. I wish there was, you know, hey, Aaron, I do this and it works every time. And, and it simply doesn't. Um, It's really hard. You know, what we do is hard. You know, it, it's not easy. And to be successful at it requires a lot of work. And I think, you know, if I were to give advice to anybody, I mean, there's probably the first piece of advice I ever got. Uh, and I see it, you know, kind of floating around out there. But it rings so true is look, um, this is a business, you know, and you may consider yourself an artist and we all do. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to differentiate in your mind the difference between being an artist and developing and delivering a product. You know, you are in business to sell your product and your product is your music. And yes, you know, we all wear our, you know, our emotions on our sleeves and we work really hard and we're, we're all artists, so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, this is business and, and frankly, it's big business. You know, I mean, when you look at what it costs to make a film or a television production or a video game or a commercial advertisement, you know, these are not things to take lightly. And when somebody wants to use your work, um, there is a minimum expectation that the quality of your work is at, you know, wh- whatever that level is, that professional. Yeah, yeah. Quality level is, and and that's the minimum, just to, in my opinion, to enter the game. Um, it, it's it's you know one of those things. I think that's where I think some people fail is. Well, I'm an artist, and if they don't like my music, well, then there you have it. Well, and no, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that attitude if you expect to make you know a full time living from it.
0: Okay. In the next segment, I'm speaking with David Hyman, who is a music uh, supervisor based in Canada with a company called Supergroup. And in this segment, I'm asking David how to get the attention of music supervisors, how artists and composers can get on someone like David's radar. This is what David had to say about that. Okay. I mean, this all makes total sense to me, and I'm sure that people listening to this, like, like it... I understand what you're saying but what like what can artists do? Let's say you're an artist and you're you're in Nebraska and you have an album mm-hmm. that you've worked really hard on. You have some ma- um, yeah. am- amazing songs cuz we all know there's so much amazing music out there. But for whatever reason okay. there's no momentum, there's no sort of trajectory that that's tangible. What can artists do to sort of get to that next level where they're on someone like like your radar?
4: I think you know, uh, my radar's a small portion of what's out there, and of course, sure. Canada's in this one hundred and fiftieth year right now, where many of my briefs, to be honest, during the twenty seventeen years include a Canadian band okay that's gonna change. And it's going to open up all sorts of music to us um, where I've been before and love being for, you know, independent films. But hopefully advertising market will open up to Americans and, and um, UK artists, Finnish artists, Swedish artists and such. Um, we are really a global society here in Canada. So it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, I love being able to tap into a scene like Nebraska, like Nebraska. If you're listening, bring it on, baby. Um, I love tapped into iowa scene last year and it was amazing maximum Ames the record and christopher the Concord. i don't have the resources or time to go out and scour the world for music so anytime someone's lucky enough to catch me or my podcast or something and and get their music to me i welcome it i know a lot of people don't but i, I truly welcome it and i love to peel back the onion once we're quote-unquote friends and see who you're playing with who else you're supporting and if i can tap further into that scene
0: yeah, and you know, by the way, I just picked Nebraska as sort of an arbitrary example. Maybe I should have picked a small town in in Canada. I'm, I'm not as as familiar with Canada, but hey, but- it
4: doesn't matter. I mean, we did when we did Vice Payday. It was a it was a show that looked at uh, eight cities across North America. So oh, okay. we did Oakland, Memphis, Reno, um, and the only two cities were Fort Mac uh, and Toronto. So oh, cool. it, we're a very international company. Canadian media is very. Uh, you know, it's it's out there. We're making content for Netflix. We're making content that's going into your mass media as well. So we're very interested in small town stories. We're very interested in the underdog. We, we relate to that in Canada very much so.
0: Okay, in the final segment of today's podcast, I'm speaking with Mexico City-based composer Milo Coelho. And in this segment, Milo and I are discussing the pros and cons of living in a place like Mexico City, where Milo is based currently, versus Los Angeles, where Milo got his start in music licensing. And we're discussing sort of the, the importance whether or not you need to be in a place like LA or New York where there's a ton of music industry, but there's also consequently a ton of competition as well. And in this segment, Milo is talking about the advantages of being in a place like Mexico City, where there's still quite a bit of music industry, and there's there's a lot of musicians there, but not nearly, the competition isn't nearly as fierce as a place like Los Angeles. And this is what Milo had to say about living and working as a musician in Mexico City versus Los Angeles.
5: And since I wasn't particularly Super happy living in L.A. I was really I was I was happy, but I was just like "Mm, I don't think I'm gonna stay here for the next 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, we decided to move back back to to Mexico City because there's also a lot a big industry here, and the the one giant plus against L.A. is that competition here is like I mean it's not nothing compared to L.A. To L.A. In L.A. Every single semester, there's tons of new students, really talented students from USC, from UCLA, from Berkeley, from Juilliard, from everywhere, and also from Europe that are moving to LA to get to achieve that dream. And some are great, some are not that great, but they have this huge ambition and they're moving all the time, so maybe they get their first. And it's I I always felt like it was just an, an ocean where everyone's trying not to drown and just sometimes pulling other people down sometimes just trying to stay uh, um, on on top of of of, the, of everyone yeah. so so i got back here and i realized that with all the, with the portfolio that i already had i was already on not on top obviously but i was on a very good level to start from there so that was really really helpful i immediately met uh, more important people than I probably would have gotten a chance in in LA. In LA, these this, this kind of people in, in the music industry, they probably get a hundred emails every day. So it's just not a thing to look for talent. It's just more of a if you get introduced to, to them and they like you, maybe they'll 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 want to work with you. And in Mexico, it's a little bit different. In Mexico, there's not first, yeah, there's not a, a big uh, awareness of of the, yeah, of the career of, of film scoring, mm-hmm. you, yeah, not a lot of people know that that's actually something you can make a living in and a good living in if if you play your cards right. So yeah, here here for me it was a lot easier to to start climbing up. That's that's the thing in LA. I felt like, and it's not not to trash talk LA or anything. I mean, you you can still do great things there, but probably. The 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 biggest things you can do in this industry, you can only achieve them living in LA. But you can do a lot of great things back in your country or back in your city, and still get a lot of stuff in LA. So, so yeah, I don't know if I'm I'm uh, answering your question.
0: Yeah, no, no, you you totally are. I mean, you're bringing up. I'm thinking of more questions. Which is, I mean, it sounds like you're saying it's sort of the best of both worlds because you're now in this this whole different territory where there's less competition, so it sounds like it's easier to kind of make headway, but you can still get placements through your LA connections is what it sounds like. But what I'm wondering is what does the film industry and TV industry like in Mexico and Mexico City compared to LA in terms of what you're... Of what you're being paid, is it comparable? Is it like that? How- is,
5: that was the most surprising thing when I when I got down here.
0: Yeah.
5: Uh, in L. A., independent films are like there's very there's usually very low budgets. Yeah. And w- what you call an independent film in Mexico can be a really really big film. So I've I, the the gigs that have been paid the most at have been in Mexico, and that's really crazy. Like people will come here, clients, and we'll be like, "Yeah, sorry, we have really a real low budget," and they tell me the budget, and I'm like, "That's not a low budget for an indie film. That's a low budget for a for a big film." So yeah, in in terms of payment, and I'm just talking about Mexico. I don't know about other countries. There's not a lot of, of films, obviously, compared to L.A. or compared to Bollywood or China. I mean, their their industries are massive. Here, it's re- it's growing a lot. But it's not as big as it is in, in LA. So, if you do the the like the proportion of how many films per year are in LA against how many composers are there are in LA, and in Mexico how many films per year as uh, compared to how many composers there are, it's sort of the same. But still, in 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 Mexico, it's easier to make a lot of more independent films, especially if you have a a, a resume and, and you have experience doing it because. Most composers in in Mexico, they they've done a couple of films at at the most, and it, it's not something they dedicate their lives to. It's just something that oh yeah, my friend's a filmmaker, and since I have a band and we're successful, or since I'm a musician and I play guitar, he asked me to, to to write the music. It's more that mindset. In L.A., the 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 filmmakers are very aware of all the film scorers that are there, and and the people in TV are also very aware of all the really talented people out there writing music for tv so yeah that's that's i think how how it compares